welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. Today I want to take a deeper look into a couple of issues that my guest has covered extensively as a staff reporter for the Raleigh, North Carolina News and Observer. First, Dan Kane was a higher ed reporter, then he covered the North Carolina state government beat. Since 2009, he has been an investigative reporter, and many of his stories have covered the NCAA in general and the University of North Carolina in particular. The issues of academic fraud and the role of academic oversight in college athletics has roiled the administration, fans, and stakeholders of the Tar Heels. As Dan wrote in 2019, quote, the academic fraud reform efforts stem from the outcry following the NCAA's Committee on Infractions decision two years ago that it could not punish UNC Chapel Hill over classes that offered high grades but no instruction. A detailed investigation by a former federal prosecutor found an academic secretary created and graded many of the classes. More than 3,100 students took at least one of these classes. The investigation led to several dismissals at UNC, along with a year's probation from its accreditor, the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools Commission on Colleges. UNC itself also adopted dozens of reforms, reforms unquote. The NCAA created an academic work group who reported that the fraud issue lay on the academic staff side as athletes were being directed by counselors, coaches, and others to enroll in classes with little academic rigor. Add to that the lack of oversight for academic departments who offer quote unquote paper classes, et cetera. And it's an issue that NCAA presidents have been working with for some time. Once the issues were in the hands of the work group though, well, Dan Kane, I'll let you pick up the story from there. Well, what happened there was you saw that the work group uh, kind of going along with uh, the Knight Commission and um, the Rice Commission. That was, a, that was a special commission created in the wake of the um, kind of like kind of, I sort of call the Sneakergate scandal where, you know, Adidas was, you know, kind of funneling money into to recruits. And, and, um, and then there was also another uh, scandal there with, with uh, assistant coaches that were Know, directing um, uh, some recruits, athletes to to certain um, uh, entities that were that were paying them, and um, so the, the Rice Commission also um, took up the issue with the the UNC case and and said that you know we need to have uh, the NCAA needs to have you know more jurisdiction over academic matters. Uh, you know, schools can't basically get away with academic fraud by basically not calling it academic fraud. Um, because the way, you know, the, the rules, or at least the way the NCAA feels the rules are set up, uh, th that's all uh, left up to the schools to identify, determine whether what happened on campus was, was indeed academic fraud. And so, um, you know, they, uh, they set up this academic uh, working group to look at ways to tackle that. Uh, so they, they came up with a recommendation to, to um, uh, give the NCAA more jurisdiction uh, but then, uh, you know, moved into the you know, arena of, you know, the Division I, um, I think, Board of uh, Directors, uh, the uh, Division I uh, Presidents, Presidential Forum. And at that level, um, which would have been, the, I think, the uh, last step before, you know, the full NCAA taking up a proposal, they, they basically stepped away from it uh, and said, well, let's just see what, uh, what we've put forward so far, whether that's, that's working and and if it's not, maybe we can come back and revisit it. So it all just stopped right there. And what was interesting about it was, 
you know, when they had that meeting in which they made that determination, you know, the NCAA puts out a press release saying, you know, here's what we're doing about, you know, uh, academic integrity. Uh, and what's missing from that is that really a key decision. And the other thing that was kind of missing, at least in uh, as far as what the public was seeing here, which, which wasn't a heck of a lot. I mean, I had to um, get a lot of um, uh, reports kind of within the NCAA using public records requests from one of its with one of its member schools, you know, was that there was this um, proposal that was being floated by the uh, president of uh, the University of Oregon. He basically said, okay, look, you know, a lot of member schools are kind of uncomfortable with, uh, uh, you know, the NCAA making the call on whether you know certain activity on a, on a campus is uh, constitutes academic fraud let's create you know basically a panel of you know university presidents university leaders you know who really aren't all that involved in ncaa matters they're kind of removed um and we will let them you know um take up you know these uh egregious cases uh to decide whether or not yes you know that's academic fraud you know and, and, and therefore move forward uh, an academic fraud case against a, uh, a member school. And, and that didn't fly either. And so, you know, here we are, you know, with the NCAA trying to fend off all these state legislatures that are saying, look, you know, these athletes, they're entitled at least to um, get endorsements under their names, their likenesses, and their images. You know, nil rights is what they're sort of commonly called. Uh, and how do you fend that off when, you know, your argument for them not having those rights is, look, you know, um, you guys are coming to our schools and we're giving you a free education. We're giving you educational opportunity. Um, the reality is that they aren't because that guarantee that, um, that they get that falls apart if the school then steers them into, you know, phony classes like they did at the University of North Carolina and the NCAA walks away from it. And so they've got a big problem, they've got a big problem there. Right. So just to refresh uh, maybe my listeners' memories, just give them a brief synopsis of the Rice Commission so they understand, you know, where that commission evolved from. Yes. Um, well, in uh, 2017, uh, the um, uh, U.S. Attorney out of uh, New York, uh, uh, dropped a pretty big bomb, uh, basically investigating uh, um, the the contacts between um, the sneaker companies and the the AU teams and the universities, you know, and finding that there was there was all this kind of money kind of um, moving around uh, under the radar, you know, um, between um, you know those three entities. So, well, I shouldn't say the universities, but but basically the schools, the AAU teams, and in some cases. There, according to them and according to their case, there was some university uh, um, knowledge of these payments moving around. And that, of course, you know, kind of flies in the face of the, uh, you know, the amateur model that the NCAA has. And they basically um, prosecuted a case under the theory that, you know, um, since that is against NCAA rules, the schools were being cheated by having these recruits, by, by bringing in these recruits who had been paid um, by the sneaker companies. And, um, you know, it made a big noise because there were several big programs that were tied up in this, including, you know, another school in my backyard, NC State University. And, you know, a lot of you and cry that, you know, that basketball, college basketball somehow had come off the rails. And so, 
um, Mark Emmert announces this, this commission led by former U.S. Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice uh, and, and um, about a dozen other um, education um, uh, and, and athletic um, representatives. Uh, and several months later, they came up with, you know, um, a whole series of, of reform proposals, a lot of which that were, were put in place and had to do more with, you know, that scandal. But there were two recommendations that had to do with academic fraud. And one had to do with this notion that you couldn't punish a school because non-athletes also, quote unquote, benefited in the academic fraud along with the athletes. That was, that was one thing they said, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense that the school escapes punishment from the NCAA because it turned out that there were also non-athletes who benefited. And then, and then the second thing that they recommended, which is the thing we're talking about, which is just giving the NCAA itself you know, more authority over these academic fraud cases. And it's interesting, the paperwork you know, and some of these reports, they literally call, this, call these unimaginables, you know, situations where you know, they're, they're looking at these schools and they're saying, oh, you know, these are, these are schools with a lot of integrity, a lot of his history, and, you know, it's higher education and, you know, the best and the brightest and all that. And yet here they are, they've got a situation where almost everybody looks at it and says, that's academic fraud. But the school um, uh, looks at, tells the NCAA, no, it's not. And, uh, and so um, they, the Rice Commission took that up. And, and I don't even think that that was even something that, you know, Mark Evert, Emmert um, envisioned in setting them forth. I think that, that the NCAA was really more focused on dealing with, again, you know, the threat to amateurism with the, right. with the money coming in from the sneaker companies and not really um, all that interested in pursuing the issues related to, you know, the educations that, that, that these athletes are promised. Well, you were one of the few reporters that, that I noticed who, who followed up on this story. You might have been the only one that followed up on this thread of, of another, you know, university president, president of a Pac-12 institution saying, hey, there's a way to address this. And we could conceivably just ask those who are outside of our immediate ecosystem and to try to get at what the issues are, because from president to president, we could provide guidance and um, and maybe handle it a little bit less uh, less in a highly visible way, but it seems to run into a stone wall. Do you have any sense about why that side just didn't didn't um, pick up any steam? Um, you know, uh, that's a good question, and <laughs> it's one that I kind of uh, uh, you know wonder. I, I do wonder about. Um, uh, there is some push, I guess, uh, out of Congress. You know, Senator uh, Chris Murphy, in particular, wrote a series of reports called uh, Madness Inc., I believe, and part, or there were three parts to that. And the second part uh, talked about academic fraud, and it talked about the the, the UNC case. And then when he had a you know a, kind of a special um, panel discussion about it, you know, he had he had the UNC whistleblower uh, Mary Willingham there, you know, talking about it. Um, you know, from, from the inside, you know, because she was a former academic um, uh, reading specialist for the, for the athletes and had pretty direct knowledge of what was going on. Um, but as far as, you know, why there's so much attention on the, um, you know, the sneaker money, uh, um, I mean, some of that has to do, obviously, with uh, it also kind of dovetails, it does dovetail into the, the nil rights issue, 
Although this does too, and I, I think a lot of people don't quite, maybe they don't quite see that. Maybe, maybe folks in the sports journalism or higher education communities don't, don't quite make that connection. I, I'm, I don't really understand why. I mean, I know, I think about a month after I wrote the story about the NCAA walking away from uh, pursuing an academic fraud you know, bylaw, or at least reformed. Um, I know Inside Higher Ed uh, did a story uh, that basically, you know, uh, confirmed what I what I had uh, exposed and uh, also had a pretty damning quote from uh, somebody who I believe was on the infractions committee, you know, years earlier, who just said that, you know, the UNC case has, has created them all, created all kinds of problems for them. And then um, just recently, you know, the, uh, uh, the LA Times came out with a report in which they had gotten a hold of a, of a confidential survey in which yes. uh, NCAA officials and university presidents and, you know, others in that, uh, in that group um, spoke about, you know, the issues that they were facing and, you know, all the bad publicity they're getting and everything. And, and I mean, um, the, the Times reporter didn't, didn't, write about UNC, but I, you know, I looked at the survey and, and one of the things that really jumped out at me was, you know, um, uh, I mean, one of the things that was said in this was, and this is from, you know, it doesn't identify exactly who said what in here, but, but it's, it's obviously somebody high up in the, in the food chain on, on, college, on college academics and athletics. And this person says, we've held focus groups with members of the public one of the key issues that always comes up is University of North Carolina and how they weren't held accountable from an academic standpoint. And then this person continues, there wasn't an infrastructure for us to do it. Um, kind of split that for a second because, I mean, the first sentence here speaks to that a lot of people out there, the people, a lot of people who follow college sports now look at that UNC case and, and say, it's unfair, the system's broken. And, um, uh, and, and I guess, and some probably, and maybe I think it's sort of a smaller group who also say, you know, the athletes are getting cheated here. Um, but I think the larger group is, Hey, you know, my school's getting whacked. UNC didn't. Yeah. And so they've got a, they've got kind of a public relations problem here. They've got an integrity, integrity problem here. Right. Um, and then the second half of the, the, the second sentence is where they say there wasn't an infrastructure for us to do it. Well, there's some debate about that. I mean, there are people who feel like, no, under under your rules, you 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 could have made a case here, um, but for some for some reason, and and of course, the UNC case is, was was really kind of a mess. It's they 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 um, kind of dropped the ball at the outset um, when they released when they when they hit the school with infractions over this. They didn't charge the the academic fraud bylaw kind of put the committee on infractions um, uh, into a position where here at the last minute, you know, they're, they're, they are the ones who are asking, well, are they, you know, isn't this academic fraud? You know, you, you told Sachs and uh, Sachs, which is the accreditor in, uh, in your correspondence, you called it academic fraud. And that led to the, the infamous, probably the, <laughs> the infamous um, uh, claim within the infractions decision that UNC officials said, well, that, that was a, that was a typo. That was a typographical error. Right. To say that. Um, uh, I found no evidence. They sought to correct that by the way. Interesting. Interesting. And subsequently the UNC president at the time, Carol Folt has left and become the uh, new president at the university of Southern California. 
Yes, that's right. Um, uh, and some people have talked about that as, um, you know, this is the University of South Carolina bringing somebody in with integrity because, you know, she navigated, you know, UNC through the academic scandal there. And while it's true that, that, that Carol Fult was not there when all of this happened, um, and she wasn't there actually for the first couple of years when, you know, we, we exposed this and, and uh, the university started to kind of acknowledge, you know, the depths of this thing. Um, she was there. She was at the NCAA hearing and was representing the university when, the, when they told the NCAAs and Committee on Infractions that classes that, that did not meet, that had um, no coursework, um, that were created and graded by a secretary and provided high grades if you turned in a paper, regardless of quality, that those were legitimate classes. Right. And then, of course, you, as you mentioned in your in several articles, a number of uh, mid-level, low-level staff members were either disciplined or uh, discharged from the university. And from your perspective, has anything changed at the university? Uh, I think that uh, it's probably nearly impossible for somebody to do what uh, Debbie Crowder had done. Uh, they are tracking independent studies. There are very strict limits on how many independent studies a professor can offer. You know, one of the, one of the things that, that allowed this thing to just, you know, mutate out of control was uh, the university just wasn't tracking, you know, how many independent studies um, uh, professors, I use that term loosely because Debbie basically was putting in a professor's name, her boss's name. Um, she, was, she was the academic secretary of the Department of African American Studies, correct? That's right. Yeah. Debbie Crowder, um, who, who created many of these, these classes. Um, so something like that, uh, probably not. But, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is, and this is, this is true, you know, across the country, not just at University of North Carolina, but, um, you know, some of the privacy laws make it extremely difficult, you know, to, to really know that, um, that athletes uh, are getting, um, you know, true educational opportunities or if they're just being steered uh, into, you know, a whole bunch of classes that, that really don't have much, you know, academic heft to them. Um, right. And that happened at UNC. I mean, not only did you have these, these fake classes, but you also, they, you know, the, the academic support program for, for the athletes had also identified a lot of gimme classes, you know, classes that, that were easy to pass. Um, the, the, and, and so th that was the diet that they fed, you know, a number of these, a number of these athletes. And, um, you know, the ones who graduated with, with, with those kinds of educations, um, you know, they have to go out in the world. And if, if they're not successful as athletes, that's what they need to fall back on. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, one other part of this that I'd like to just get your thoughts on is this business of accreditation. And it, it struck me that the uh, Southern Commission uh, on, on Colleges uh, maybe punted uh, in this situation, didn't really address the issues that they could have taken more, more st stronger action and turned it back to the institution because it was athletics. Do you have any sense about that? Well, it was it was interesting um, what happened with the, the accrediting commission. Um, you know, when this thing first broke, they came in and uh, you know went through this with the university, and basically they came up with you know kind of a fix where 
um, and I guess under North Carolina law that if you graduate, um, they, they can't really, you know, open up your transcript and kind of demand that you come back and, and uh, take a bunch of classes. Um, it's, it's, it, is, it is sealed, I guess. Um, but for students who are still there and were in a position where they could not graduate without the inclusion of these phony classes, um, Sachs gave them three options. You know, either, either you um, show that you did the work, take a challenge test, and if you can't, and if, and if um, you can't do those things, then you need to take another class. You know, you need to show that you actually got something out of, you know, uh, a class at, at the University of North Carolina. It has to count. And, um, uh, and then when, when more details came out and Sachs started to feel like, well, you know what? There were people who knew things that, that didn't tell us about them, about the depths of this thing. They went back again. And that's when they hit them with a year's probation. And, you know, folks out there were saying, well, how come they didn't, they didn't do anything worse? Well, that's the worst thing they can do um, other than literally um, de-accredit the university, which basically practically shuts them down because if a university is de-accredited, they can't get federal funding. I mean, that's how important these, these, these uh, accrediting groups are. Right. Um, that's the power that they, that they have, but they have, they're so limited in, in what they can wield. They can either just kind of sort of sanction them you know, sort of said, okay, you know, guys, you, you did bad here, or they can literally just clobber them with a sledgehammer and, and, and take, take them out of business. And so, and, and so that's, that, you know, and, and there's been a lot of debate about whether or not, you know, that structure really, really serves, um, you know, um, serves the university, serves the public, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, making sure that, that, that universities have, you know, academic integrity. Um, and then, and, and, but we'll, we'll move a little farther down the line here. When, when the NCAA decision came out and the infrastructure committee said, look, I mean, you told your accreditor, you acknowledge that this was academic fraud to your accreditor, and now you're telling us that's a typo. Well, I learned that, you know, UNC never went to the accreditor and said, oh, wait a minute, we, we spoke here. We didn't mean to say academic fraud. We meant to say this or whatever. They never fixed that. You know, they just... You know, that, that it just it just um, moved moved on, and then I also noted that they had this arrangement where, you know, students who had taken these classes and hadn't yet graduated, they were going to have to do all these things um, uh, to put some accountability into you know what they actually learned, and um, and I raised those issues. I asked I asked the uh, the president of the commission, uh, you know, Bell Whelan, about these things. And, you know, she basically acknowledged that they, you know, that they were, you know, legitimate questions and needed to be asked. Uh, but then, like, literally within a couple of days, she basically told the university, you know, we're not doing, you know, you know, we're not doing anything more here. You know, um, um, we're done. You know, this was not a big deal. Uh, and, and it was kind of interesting. And then, and then the university, you know, of course, kind of university, um, that came back and basically said that I had misquoted her, which wasn't true. And, and it became kind of a shoot the messenger opportunity for them. But in the end, I think everyone looks at this and says, geez, you know, here's this university that for 18 years, we're creating these, these phony classes, or at least, you know, um, uh, two people within that university were doing that. Um, it was a massive academic fraud. It's far as we know, the biggest academic fraud ever in NCAA history and this is this is how it all ends. 
Right, right. It's a remarkable story, Dan, and, and you have told it so well to the readers who've been following it, and you've been very uh, diligent at continuing to follow the threads as they've, as they've sort of metastasized along the way. Um, last question for you. If, you. if you were a college president or a board of trustee member listening to this story, what kinds of questions might you be asking yourself or your board about the job that you're doing on your own campus? You know, that's a tough question. I'm not sure that I should be answering that because I'm, you know, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a college president. You know, I'm not a, you know, I'm not an accreditor. I'm not a, you know, an NCAA, uh, you know, uh, investigator or, or uh, um, uh, somebody who would sit on the committee of infractions. Um, uh, I, I, I think that um, a lot of folks, uh, you know, could look at what happened here and think about, you know, what they might need to do to, um, a provide quality educations to you know athletes uh, if that's what you I mean you I mean you don't have to do this I mean you know, college sports is not a requirement um, for universities to have I mean but but if you want to go there and you have integrity well then you know you want to make sure that athletes do get you know true educational opportunities because what is it like only two percent yeah. Um, go on to meaningful pro careers. Um, and um, so many of them, many of them, this is, you know, this is their opportunity, you know, to, to uh, learn to be, you know, any, in all kinds of, um, or in all kinds of professions and careers. And, and uh, to have a system like what happened at UNC, where it's just, you know, um, steer them into this one particular major and, and, have them in these these classes with almost no academic merit um uh you know do you really do you really want that to happen and um but you know you you what we've talked about shows just how difficult it is uh to to walk away from really walk away from the money um because that's potentially what's at risk here if you basically start saying, you know, universities have to be, you know, have to make sure that they're universities and they're actually educating uh, all the students who, who uh, come through the doors. Um, but if that costs you, you know, um, athletes who are the top performers on the court or on the football field, um, uh, then, uh, you know, you've got, I mean, it could be a big price to pay. Right. And, and weighing that out and what the pros and cons are. Dan Kane, I really want to thank you for spending some time with me and, and my listeners today to talk about this issue in more, in more detail. I encourage listeners to uh, follow your, your reporting, follow you on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle, Dan? It's uh, Dan Kane Nando, N-A-N-D-O, which okay. is kind of, uh, short for News and, Observ News and Observer. Got it. Great. Um, and of course, you can find our stuff at... Uh, uh, www.newsobserver.com. Excellent. Okay. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Senator, for the opportunity to reiterate that um, and, and recognize that collegiate athletics is unique in the world. It uh, does not exist anywhere else in the world. It is part of what makes our universities the envy of the world. Uh, it is part of what uh, keeps 
Uh, it, it attracts students, it attracts faculty, it keeps our alumni engaged, it keeps our donors engaged, and it creates uh, a campus life that, that really cannot be replicated anywhere else. That benefits clearly our student athletes, and we've talked about how that, that is so today, but certainly um, it creates a tremendous benefit for our students and the experience that they have while they're pursuing their education and equally growing into to adults. Um, uh, but but it, it is, uh, you know, our, our athletics department does not fund the university. Fortunately, our university doesn't fund our athletics department either, so we are blessed uh, in that regard. But the the uh, benefits that the university gains, um, again, being a Midwest university where we, we are relying on out-of-state student recruitment, being on a national stage on a regular basis, you, you cannot replace that. That was Kansas Chancellor Douglas Gerard speaking in front of the Senate subcommittee studying the issues of names, images, and likenesses in February 2020. How does what he said comport with how Dan Kane, reporter from North Carolina, describing the academic situation at the University of North Carolina? I think that's the crux of college athletics today. They bring a lot of good to the campus, but what good do they bring to the student athletes who are participating? That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us for another week of thinking about college athletics from the 30,000 foot perspective. In case this is the first time you are joining us, the podcast drops every Thursday morning. You can listen to previous guests and topics on eight different podcasting platforms, including iTunes and Spotify. Each week, I will strive to give you a deeper understanding of the complexities of higher education and intercollegiate athletics in the 21st century. Please also join me on Forbes.com for additional content and extended analysis. Have a great week.